0: really, for me, exciting to to read about. And he has a lot of unique experience that you don't see too often. So I I think that's really cool, and I, I love reading it.
1: You're listening to The Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day and thanks again for tuning in. In today's episode, we cover a heap of ground as we talk about the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association in the US, loss of license, insurance, helicopter blogs, recommended iPad apps, in-flight emergency handling, and tuna boat flying. Sponsors for today's episode are trainmorepilots.com. If you're looking for better ways to attract new students to your flying school, and if you wanna get on top of your online marketing, then there are resources at trainmorepilots.com that can help you and your company out. So check the webpage out, and you'll be helping to support the podcast. Now, Ian Twimbley is editor of the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, or AOPA, monthly magazines, the AOPA pilot and flight training. Ian has been a fixed-wing instructor for some time and has also now recently joined the helicopter fraternity, so we welcome him on board again to the, to the dark side. And one of his other duties with AOPA is to head up the Hoverpower blog, which is the organisation's helicopter-focused uh, web blog. Ian has been busy building up the site and has managed to herd a a team of experienced helicopter pilots together to contribute articles about a whole different range of of helicopter operations. You know, in some ways, very much like this show, trying to capture that knowledge that's out there and uh, bring it together in one place so we can all share it together. One of the blog contributors is Marcus Lavinson. Marcus is a AW139 captain in the Gulf of Mexico and is about to head off shortly to convert across to the Augusta 189. He has been flying since way back in 1984, and he's had a go at instructing, tuna boats, tourism, power lines, EMS, offshore, check and training roles, and also done a stint in Alaska. So a heap of experience, and as you'll hear, he sounds just as keen to go flying today as any brand new CPL holder. Hang around after the interview, and I'll let you know how you can get your hands on some free stuff. Hey, guys, this is going to be a bit new for this podcast. We've got two folks on the line, so we're, we're really pushing our, our technical ability here on Skype. And uh, with me, I've got Ian and Marcus. So thanks very much, guys, for being able to come along.
2: Thanks for All having
1: us. Thanks for having us. All right, so we're going to be talking about the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association today, uh, which is basically the, the US uh, body or, or group. But, guys, Ian, I might throw it over to you first. Can you just quickly sort of give a background on the association and I guess some of the aims that you're trying to achieve with it.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so AOPA is, uh, well, we we say the largest uh, community of pilots in the world, and, and by that we mean we represent primarily folks in the U.S., but we do have actually a larger association of uh, AOPA groups in the world, but the majority of the membership is in the U.S., and we support pilots in everything from um, advocacy to uh legal support and products and then um obviously information and everything too like uh, magazines and uh some other stuff that we're gonna obviously talk about. So, you know, we try and be a place for pilots to connect and be support and just really share in, in their passion.
1: Have you got a rough idea of um numbers? If we talk numbers of members and uh I don't know if you if the aircraft get registered or if it's just individual people?
0: Yeah, sure. So um we have about 350,000 members, and, uh, and that includes everything from guys who are flying for the airlines to uh, the student pilots, so it's kind of all over the board.
1: And just doing the research for this, so obviously it got kicked off in 1939, and it's been uh, basically moving along since, and it's a not-for-profit organization. Is there any of the history or the background that you can sort of, any stories that come out that you can talk about?
0: Yeah, sure. So um we did. We started in nineteen thirty nine and it was a group of guys who got together at Wingsfield in, in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. And and I think they you know, they were kind of looking uh at the scene in the world and, and they realized that aviation was um sort of this nascent industry really and uh and it needed some support. They they saw some threats to cost and, and basically overregulation and so they started with this idea that that they were going to, uh, form, uh, really this, this advocacy group that would, they would fight for pilots rights. And, uh, and that's, that's what they did. They started, I think there were maybe eight, uh, in the beginning, six, eight, something like that. And, um, and over time it just grew, you know, especially at the end of world war II, um, with all the, uh, all the pilots coming out of the, the US Army Air Corps and the Marines and the Navy, they, uh, and, you know, they got a big boost of, of folks who were flying civilian. And so they've worked over the years on everything from, I mean, you name it, it's been there, everything from, uh, you know, when the transponder came in, airspace changes, you know, it's, it's just been, uh, just been everything. You know, our, our, our big fight for the past, I don't know, 20 years or so. Really the overarching thing has been what in America they call user fees, which is, you know, we have, our air traffic system is paid for through the users through um, taxes, fuel taxes, and then on the airline side, like uh, PFCs, you know, um, facility charges. But uh, there have been proposals to <laughs> to make it a per flight fee, like it is in a of the rest of the world, and to privatize the air traffic control system. And, and we've always maintained that our system works so well because it's because of the way it's funded and the way it's structured. And so, so we've done, you know, we've worked on that, um, and then uh, now, of course, we we're, we're our big issue is transition to ADS-B uh, here in the U.S. and uh, and then actually cost and access to the system. It's you know things have just gotten more and more expensive as airplanes have gotten more expensive, and so we're we're obviously really worried about the the future of aviation both uh, here and, and around the world.
1: It sounds yeah some similar issues here in Australia now. with The GA industry really starting to. to... Feel squeezed as, as far as one just regulations, but yeah, things like the extra costs coming in of ADSB and things like that too. So it seems like fairly similar GA type, kind of topics wherever you are. Yeah. Marcus, how did you get involved with AOPA? What was your initial contact with it?
2: Uh, in the early 80s, when I decided to become a commercial pilot, I was in my first year of flight school, and many, many of my instructors were AOPA members. Uh, just for the benefits alone, for a commercial pilot, and we have a lot of GA members in AOPA. But I think there's really very real benefits for the commercial pilot. I know that. So I've been in since the early 80s, and I really like the legal insurance plan. When your livelihood depends, you know, upon the aviation profession and you maintaining your license, and that sometimes the pilot may find himself in a situation where he needs professional legal advice and I've actually had to utilize it once, and uh, it it wasn't a big deal, but I was able to pick up a phone and actually connect with AOPA and talk to a legal professional immediately. And so that's a very real benefit. I I, I love the magazine and the online resources. When I'm ferrying aircraft internationally, there's especially, uh, particularly through Canada, which I did last year, um, I found the resources online for AOPA to do that uh, legally and safely because I wasn't well-versed with Canadian flight regulations, which there's there are some significant differences from the U.S. And so that was very, very helpful.
1: As far as uh, like an organization, well, actually, before we start talking about AOPA um, a little bit more, can we talk about the the size of the, of the U.S. GA industry? So have you know, you've got a rough idea of you know, total number of aircraft, um, the hours would be flown, and then I guess let's talk about the helicopter fleet as well, just in, in size. Have you got rough figures around those sorts of things?
0: Yeah, so the total pilot population in the U.S. is just south of about 600,000, and that includes uh, the student pilots up through ATPs. And the FAA, it's a little confusing kind of how they define that, but it, it basically what that is is people with current medicals and student pilot certificates, and you also have support pilots in there, and those guys don't have to have medicals. But generally, you think of it as around six hundred thousand pilots. The helicopter pilots are um, just a fraction of that. Uh, it's in total. It's about thirty-three thousand uh, right now. I'm, I'm actually. It's, yeah, it's about thirty-three thousand, and so that makes
1: five percent. it sounds like rough. Just top of the head yeah,
0: and that's that's everybody. That's people who have uh, private. It's uh, like fixed wing and commercial helicopter or, you know, just helicopter or whatever in any way you want to slice it. That's, that's total numbers. So, and the fleet, I think total aircraft now, they estimate, if they estimates were just a little bit less than 200,000 and the rotorcraft part of that is about, it's roughly 10,000.
1: All right. It seems fairly static. Like I remember looking at um, figures, and I guess you know it is a pretty rough figure too. But uh, probably going back four years or so, there was articles comparing the U.S. fleet to, you know, how few helicopters there were in China, and uh, yeah, I think it was around about ten thousand versus maybe five hundred in China at the time was the, the kind of the rough comparison. So. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely when you look at any kind of aviation map over there, like you guys have got so many airfields <laughs> compared to uh, what we've got here in Australia, it's uh, it's really crazy in that respect.
0: Yeah, we've got uh, just well, just airports. I mean, not even including all the heliports, and hospitals, and everything else. Just airports, public use. We've got something like fifty five hundred, and then total landing facilities is some. I think it's like fifteen thousand.
1: And is it much pressure? Like that's the other one of the other big GA things here in Australia is the the pressure on airfields by um, you know just housing developments and things like that. You know, people will go and uh, buy a house next to an airfield and then go and complain about the airfield noise. Is that a uh, common issue for you folks?
0: Yeah, it is. Um, It absolutely is. It's it's a. I mean, we have people who you know, it's their full time job. Is all they do is deal with those issues. Um, And uh, both a from a kind of a. Strategic level, working with FAA and uh, other airports groups, and in Congress, down to like the local level, where we'll have regional folks working with um, airport managers to try and solidify um, development plans and things like that. So yeah, it, it's a it's a major issue. In the question
1: and AOPA that you so you actually deal with that inside the organization. You've got people who are yeah. actively doing that. Were you involved yeah, definitely, in, definitely. I, think, I think in New York um, was the most recent one, the guys who were landing on the river there, they had some kind of noise restrictions put in or they were about to be shut down. Were you guys involved in anything there?
0: The, uh, you mean the helicopter operators in New York?
1: Yeah, I think I've seen some coverage about um, some noise issues they had.
0: Yeah, the, the um, in fact, the, what that stems from is not necessarily in the city, but they, there's a very big business with uh, people from Manhattan going out to the Hamptons in Long Island, uh, New York uh, for the weekend. And so, and it's apparently a lot of like twin turbine helicopters going out there on Fridays and coming back on Sundays. Um, and so noise is a factor for the folks on the Hamptons. And that that's, that's going to be a tough one because it's such an unusual place. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's basically like a helicopter taxi service. I mean, it's, it's so, Busy, so it's uh, that's, that's going to be a tough issue, I think.
1: All right, so back on some of the the benefits of joining or the things that, uh, that the organization does for the GA community. Yeah, can you break down and maybe go into a little bit more depth about uh, what membership actually gets you?
0: So, membership, I mean, you know, first and foremost, being a member it means that you're supporting the organization and supporting its advocacy efforts. So, it's a in that way, it's not unlike a professional joining their professional association and, and, you know, being, having their voice heard and, and uh, being able to be represented. So that's, that's kind of first and foremost, but actual benefits there. Marcus actually mentioned a couple of really great ones. Um, and I didn't even tell him to, so he's, <laughs> he's on he, uh, the, uh, the legal service plan I think is one of the best ones. It's, um, it's just really, really cool, very creative and very affordable, Plan where basically you you just pay a, an extra fee. and It's nominal. It's depending on what you do with your certificate. It's less than fifty or less than hundred dollars. And and what it gets you is access to an attorney. And uh, that can be everything from reviewing uh, an aircraft purchase agreement to if you have a if the FAA violates you, they'll they'll represent you in the hearing with the FAA and then the NTSB. And uh, and it's basically a no cost. So it's a pretty incredible plan. So there's that. There's we have we have a very robust magazine. We have a website with all kinds of resources from flight planning and weather to, as Marcus mentioned, specific stuff about flying internationally and buying and selling airplanes. We have lesson plans for CFI's. I mean, it's it's kind of endless, really. I think somebody told me once we have 40,000 pages on the uh, on the website. So uh, lots of information.
2: Is there well, like
1: a, um, a bulk buying scheme, or like where if you you know you you show your card at certain places, you get like a, a group discount? Is that sort of stuff? You know,
0: we actually um, we've looked into that kind of stuff, but there's there is no, we haven't made it work. So no, there there is no sort of group discount thing. We do have we have partners. Um, so the the third thing I was going to mention is kind of member discounts, and so. Uh, rental car agencies and a few other things, travel sites and stuff like that. That basically, if you if you interact uh, electronically, so you uh, reserve a car online, you'll get a discount from the car. And so there's some of that, but it's not um, not on maybe a national level with all the hotels or anything like that or all the SBOs. It's uh, it's more kind of on a one by one basis. And, and like I said, you do those kind of through the website.
1: On the commercial side, is there a like a loss of license type service there, or is that do you think the association? does? Yeah, we
0: we actually just launched that, so I I don't know a whole lot about it because it is so new. In fact, that I mean that was just in the last month or two, where we realized you know we had a legal plan, um, and in the U.S. it depends on kind of on where you're flying. Some unions will cover you with lots of license, but um, but you know many many won't or or Many guys aren't even in a union obviously. So so yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a loss of license insurance, um, loss of medical essentially. And so if you uh, if you have a problem then it'll bridge up the gap on your income. And uh like I said, it's still a new plan, but uh but it seems like a good one and, and not widely available. So I think we're excited to have it.
1: And Marcus is there anything else you found along the
2: way that you sort of got out of it? No, I didn't know about the loss of medical insurance, but uh I think that's a new, yeah. <laughs> that that's a new one for me and I, that sounds really interesting and do some further research on that for myself and I know uh, most of the pilots I know are obviously do it for a living. They're commercial and uh that's that's something I think many uh professional pilots would be very interested in. Protect their protect their income and their financial uh, responsibilities well the other one is just you know getting
1: your insurance you know, often you know as soon as you say you're a your pilot or something like that especially if you're doing uh, air work and things uh just getting your, your basic life insurance and things like that or uh, critical care insurance so yeah i don't know if uh, yeah, uh, right. if you're looking at down the track as that but uh i think that's something you know again all kind of pilots would need to look at especially for commercial pilots yeah,
2: yeah definitely yeah, we do. It, um, it's in the past been kind of prohibitively expensive you know, for for a single person to go out and get loss of license insurance, it's been prohibitively expensive. So this is this would be interesting through AOPA. It might be a much better deal.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, and um, we're
0: we're one thing that's really nice is we have an insurance agency, an aircraft insurance agency, and and it used to be that we were kind of separated, and and the agency would um, write policies for aircraft owners and maybe aircraft renters, but um, but we weren't really aligned strategically with the programs that the association was working on, but that has gotten much tighter now because it's, it's run uh, actually from the headquarters. And so the benefits there are that we've um, we've been able to create offerings that are much more, I think, relevant to, uh, to what people are looking for, like this loss of license insurance, um, better life insurance plans, knowing that, like you, like you say, like that, uh, pilots sometimes have difficulty finding life insurance, um, and then uh, and also we've we've been able to write insurance more competitively for a wider a wider range of airplanes. You know, it used to be kind of the you know the '70s Piper, Cessnas, beaches were really easy to write for, but some of the classics or, or others weren't. And, and now we've been able to been able to do that both from insurance and actually a financing standpoint. So, so I'm really proud of that because it, it's you know, I think it uh, obviously it helps us because it helps uh, that money gets fueled back to the association, and, and we're able to do more with it from an advocacy standpoint. But uh, but I think it's a better uh, it's a better service to pilots too. So that's I'm really happy about that.
1: No, that sounds good. Uh, one of the other um, areas you talked about was the actual you know the magazine and the online side, and again that's where you guys sort of both come in. So they you know, throw it to Ian or, or Marcus who wants to talk about it. You want to talk about the the AOPA, uh blog, especially the, the Power blog?
2: Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. We're the only helicopter blog of AOPA and it's an opportunity. We've got five. I'm one of five authors that write the blog and we get a new entry each week and it's a way we're, we're trying to bridge uh, knowledge and a knowledge gap and use experience and talk about some technical aspects with with the odd kind of blast in the past fun story as well and uh, I think it's a good it's a good way to share there's a comment section so people that read the blog can also comment on it I've seen some really good uh positive back and forth and it's uh it's a great way to to share information from from uh, some of our blog writers that have experience to, you know, maybe some younger pilots that are just starting off in their career flying. And uh, I've noticed, too, some of the people that do comment are very experienced pilots. So we seem to be bridging a pretty good gap you know, or a pretty good spread between, you know, newer pilots and pilots that have been maybe flying for a while. So um, that's at uh, blog.aopa.org and that will get you to the blog page, and we're at the bottom. We're Hover Power, so we're the helicopter blog.
1: Yeah, and there's an about page there, so there's kind of five, uh, five of you folks in the background submitting the articles. And Ian, uh, you sort of play a bit of an editorial role there. Are you sort of running the show, or how, where do you fit in, uh, Ian?
0: <laughs> yeah, we um, we used to have one guy doing it, and uh, and he would he would post maybe uh, once or twice a month because he – he was uh, he was not in the organization. He was a freelancer and um, had a full-time job, actually, in, the, in a training center. I think for uh, well, what's now Airbus helicopter, but and he did a great job. He had a ton of knowledge and, and would cover various technical and industry subjects. But when he uh, when he stepped back, uh, I, I I got ready in helicopters just last year, and so it's it's kind of my new passion, and uh, and I really wanted to to build the blog and, and grow it into something because I think. From a commercial side, we're, we're fairly well served here in the U.S. with uh, publications and blogs and, and industry information. Uh, but uh, but the kind of the non-commercial and the flying aspects and the techniques and stuff like that really aren't covered very much. Um, and so I wanted to be a place where private <laughs> helicopter owners could go and then even even folks who uh who fly professionally who are interested uh just on kind of the lighter side and maybe a quick technique piece or something like that where, where they could turn and so i was able to to bring together a I think a, a really great group of of really varied experience you know there's me who's really the new guy and uh i still have that uh <laughs> that kind of you know, I'm, I haven't been doing this long enough to be jaded, so I I'm, I still have that really excited uh, outlook on the whole thing. And so, I write mainly from kind of the new pilot perspective, uh, and uh, and really industry news um, because I'm I'm closest to it. But then uh, Marcus, I, I think, has done an incredible job because his experience, uh, which I, I think we'll talk about in a few minutes, is is just uh, phenomenal and uh, really for me exciting to to read about so and he has a lot of uh a lot of unique experience that you don't see too often so i i think that's really cool and i, I love reading it and then we've got somebody who has an r44 who um uh, maria who flies uh just uh for herself and then uh, does some ride business and um commercially rated and uh has a nice perspective on that and then we've got uh guys who who fly are designated examiners, uh, there's a designated examiner and uh, uh, flies a little bit of hems, uh, that's Matt, and uh, he does some instruction and so he has a really nice perspective and then there's uh, Neil Lanning who owns a flight school uh, here, he's actually, his school is the one I learned from and I, I think very highly of him in the school and uh, so he has a ton of Robinson time just thousands of hours and also uh, flies some 206 and so you know, between uh, between all of us, I think we cover kind of a range, and I'm uh, really, really uh, feel really good about it. And and, uh, and I think people are responding to it.
1: Yeah, and that's what, again, if you're listening to this, I'd say go and check out the articles and and leave some comments. It's always you know it's incredibly hard, whatever kind of blog you're running. For most folks, um, you know, it's often a very very quiet uh, uh, thing. <laughs> so you see the tumbleweeds roll past. So it's nice when you get the the comments come through and you have a, a conversation. Uh, about the topic material there. But um, Marcus, you you must be the, the crusty old jaded uh, person on the blog, and, uh
2: Well, I, I, I'm actually not. <laughs> and uh, I'm very enthusiastic for aviation. I think I've got the best job in the world where I don't have to go buy my aircraft. I get paid to actually fly the aircraft. So uh, I'll give you the... I've been flying for over 31 years and... I I love contributing to the blog and I uh, I tell you I'm excited in 10 days I'm off to Italy and I'm transitioning to the Augusta Westland 189 and I'm very excited about that. It's a 30 million dollar aircraft so I'm not jaded, I'm excited.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, pe- I picked up the excitement in your email when you when you said that. So uh yeah, it's uh it sounds like uh, you should be able to get a yeah, couple of blog uh, a blog post out of
0: that. <laughs> As it's a total, yeah. uh, a side note, I think it's. It, I actually, you know, there's this thing with professional pilots, and they, um, they, you know, they sometimes do get down, and and uh, you know, you think, oh, they talk about whatever the the, they're not getting paid enough, or they sit around the FBO too much, or whatever. But it's yeah, like, yeah, you know, the
1: keep going uh, up, insurance, and
0: yeah, yeah, I love talking to Marcus because it's like if you love to fly, it's a great job, right? And he. Clearly loves it, and he loves what he's doing, and it's uh, it's refreshing. I love, I, I love, love hearing about it. So I think that's that's really great. Well,
1: there's a couple of stories that we might tease out of Marcus uh, shortly, but if we stick on the, on the blog side, of things like, um, and Ian, I don't know if you run this or if it's a joint thing, but but how do you come up with uh, topic ideas and sort of how do you have it like the editorial
2: sort of uh, mindset or well, or the outlook? You know, I just recently started with the Hover Power blog for AOPA and when Ian invited me to join by the beginning of this year. So, you know, I've just had, oh, three, three or four entries and I'm, I try to find a balance and I want to find a balance between technical instructional. I, at heart, I am an instructor. I've always been a CFII, and I've been a Czech airman as well and company instructor. So I always have the need. I always like the idea of instructing and helping other pilots. Uh, achieve what they want to achieve. And so it's a balance between that. And then I think sometimes it's nice to bring, oh, you know, a type of helicopter operation. It's nice to write about that, that maybe a lot of people don't know about, uh, such as flying helicopters off of tuna boats in the 80s and 90s, that kind of thing, or power line patrol. And I've got an upcoming blog coming out that's going to be out about Helicopters doing sling loads, IFR. And many people have not heard of that. And that actually is done in certain parts of the world and can be done safely and correctly. And so that's kind of exciting. So I like the idea of being able to kind of look back in perspective and write about uh, maybe just the odd. Type of thing helicopters can do because after all they are they they're the ultimate machine if you ask me they're the ultimate off-road vehicle and they have the capability of doing something no other machine made by man can possibly do and that's it makes them very versatile and makes it pretty exciting so I try to find that balance where we do that we kind of look back uh, retrospectively but yet we also look forward. And what's the information that can actually help improve safety and maybe help uh breadth of knowledge for an individual pilot?
1: Yeah, and look, that's something that I'm trying to do with these episodes too—is is capture some of that knowledge and, and share it around because, because often it you know it gets passed down you know person to person in a hangar somewhere, and uh, you know things like tuna right. boats or you know bits of pieces of people in their, in their whole career will just never come across it. It's just trying to that's, have that cross pollination. That's
2: true. You know. I happen to work at a very busy base. Uh, I'm flying offshore oil and gas support and I work at a very busy base and I could well be in a room at a table with 20 pilots around me and maybe it's a slow day or the end of the day and people are at the table, they're not flying their aircraft and we're hangar talking. We're sitting around and we're talking and it could be about an FER, it could be an EP, an emergency procedure with a certain aircraft, we could be discussing something and the knowledge in that room is phenomenal. It's incredible. And not every pilot has access to that. So I think in a small way with the blog, we can kind of bring some of that uh, to cyberspace where anybody can really access that. So that I think that's that's kind of exciting for me.
1: Yeah, very much so. I noticed, like, that the main blog itself is, is, is you know, quite impressive. Actually, they really doubled down and almost like a, a TV news video type thing. Uh, are you guys going to get the the funding to to do anything like that?
0: Oh, you mean uh, the main website and like AOK Live and how we're doing the weekly? Um,
1: yeah, look, it's um, web shows. looks very professional yeah. with the, you know basically like an anchor team and things like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I am. I'm hoping that we're going to um, have the opportunity to contribute to that from a helicopter standpoint, you know, I've done a little bit, um, just on other helicopter stories I've done, like, uh, uh, went out to Enstrom, uh, in, uh, in Michigan, cause they're, they've ramped back up and, um, a story on them. And so that was on the show, but yeah, absolutely. love to do more. It's, uh, the show has become video has really become kind of the third leg of our, we almost have like a three-legged stool of media. Now it's the, you know, print online and video. And, um, so the, the video is anchored by that, by that weekly web TV show. It's called AOP Live. So if you Google it, it's, uh, you'll, you'll find it. And, um, yeah, every week on Thursday, uh, for about 15 to 20 minutes, you get kind of what's new in the world of aviation. And then, uh, just a little bit of fun, whether it's uh, this week, actually, is the, the VE day uh, flyover that we had in DC, which is really incredible. Um, so i be on a show and just uh what we find out there so yeah it's a, it's a really nice way to uh to catch up and and be a little entertained too
1: and you're being flooded with um you know kneeboards to review and books and all this sort of stuff like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to plug it here so anyone listening you know wants to send you some some free stuff uh what's, yeah, what's the deal with that
0: yeah. yeah we do we do it's um in fact i um <laughs> i had a couple of flights and it, what'll happen is all that stuff piles on my desk over a period of a couple of weeks, because it's like most of the flying I'm doing on a regular basis is, is instructional. I have a student, and so we're we're working through basic stuff. And so, I don't have a lot of time to to review products. But when I actually get to fly out for a story or something like that, uh, you know, I bring everything with me, and it's like you know review them all kind of uh, at a, one at a time uh, throughout the flight. And so, actually, this week I flew uh, two kind of longer trips and a whole slew of stuff. So yeah, yeah, we definitely we definitely get it all. And these days, it's honestly, if um gosh, I ninety percent of stuff I get is iPad related. It's mounts, apps, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's it's primarily iPad related. That's where all the action is.
1: Have you got your top couple of uh apps for the iPad, either of you, that uh you sort of recommend to other people?
0: oh uh, well, you know, people always ask me, like, what's, this, what's my favorite EFB, you know, the, the kind of all-in-one flight bag app? And I always say it's like fast food. It's like, you know, if you like McDonald's, you go to McDonald's all the time. And if you like Wendy's, you go to Wendy's all the time. And at the end of the day, they're probably the same. But what you're familiar with is is what you're going to have. And that's, I think, the way it is with them. It's like once you learn one, stick with it because it's the best, meaning it's the best for you and it's going to be great. because. Capability-wise, there are differences, and there, you know, there are little things that this one will do that that one won't do. But they're all great, and um, so I, I, I know it's kind of a cop out. My my current favorite, I have to say, though, is uh, Garmin Pilot, and that's only because if you have a, a GTN 650 or 750 and it can interact with a Flight Stream, it is just uh, oh, it's an amazing, amazing technology. You know, I, I was using it the other day, and it's so you sit there on your iPad. And I was dodging a bunch of weather and it's like you've got the radar on the, on the panel and on the iPad and, uh, you're able to kind of work through and change flight plans on the iPad and then send it to the navigator or vice versa. And it's, uh, it's really incredible. I mean, it's like, you know, it used to be guys would buy like a 530 and a 430. So you'd have this dual Garmin stack and now really it's, you buy a seven fifty, all you need is an iPad. There's no reason to buy a second Navigator because um, everything that you want is right there in your lap, and it's really incredible.
1: Yeah, It's crazy that you know some of these systems would be like thirty or forty grand, and now yeah, like a couple of dollar app Sometimes it's uh, it's awesome. Yeah,
2: true. Uh, I, I'll give a I'll give a thumbs up to Foreflight as far as an app goes for the iPad, and uh, I love it. And I would say ninety plus percent of the pilots that that I work with. You know, utility, commercial, helicopter, you know, use for flight. It's definitely for flight on the iPad. Probably has a 90% market share among the pilots I work with. It's incredible, and it, it's just an incredible application, especially when you couple it with the Stratus antenna, because now you're getting ADS-B in, plus an ARS, which is really phenomenal. So, yeah.
1: Well, that answers my my next question, because I was going to ask you, Marcus, you know, on the offshore stuff, the folks using iPads, but uh, yeah, obviously they
2: are. Love them. Yeah, we actually do use iPad. We're in the process of uh, getting them in our ops specs as electronic flight bags, uh, like some of the airlines have. Uh, Right now, they're they're just advisory, so they're not in the ops specs, but uh, we still, we use them. And if you couple them to a Stratus 2 antenna, you get ads in, that's fantastic. And for us, you think about it this way, we could be 200 miles offshore. And we have radar on board the aircraft. But the air- aircraft radar it looks forward, and if we're still going offshore, we don't really see what's behind us or certainly isn't going to reach 200 miles to tell us what's going on onshore. And aircraft radar, it has its limitations. Uh, you know, strong cells can block and bounce that radar signal back, so you don't really know what's behind that cell in front of you, you know, if it's a fixed cell. So we can access NEXRAD radar. We can get weather file flight plans it's it's really incredible i mean to sit down and file an offshore ifr flight plan and it's gone in a minute filed you get a brief to your email with notams and expected clearances it's a pretty phenomenal tool and i've also used oh the part i'm really excited about too is there's a profile you can get on your route and if you're doing class 2 navigation off airway ifr you know, you've got to have some legal obstruction clearances, obviously. And it and it's an aid to help you do that. And uh really yeah, we, we're we really love Foreflight. It's from you can do so much to it. You can do weight and you can do weight and balance on your aircraft, but we really use it for the flight planning aspect. And ForeFlight Flight did a great thing a few years ago. The Gulf of Mexico is set up into a grid system. There's three by three mile blocks. And each block uh, will be in a sector and have a number. So, for example, you may have Green Canyon 680. Well, there's only going to be one Green Canyon 680, and it's a three-by-three-mile block. And they're on they're on aeronautical charts, and what ForeFlight did was actually add those. So if you're building a route and you say, hell, I'm flying from New Orleans to Green Canyon 680, ForeFlight knows where that is, and it puts it in there. And it's, uh, it's, it's a great... Great tool for us. We love it. So that seems to be our preferred app.
0: <laughs> uh, <also.
2: laughs> yeah. But everybody's got their favorites, don't we? You know, and, and yeah. I get yeah. that. I because I've always been a Garmin, big Garmin fan, huge Garmin fan. And I think I think what Ian said is probably valid. If we had all started using another app, we'd probably love that. <laughs>
1: Well, it's the opposite opportunity cost too. Like, you know, if you, if you get familiar with one, then to have to try and, and learn with, you know, with a different system. Uh, yeah, so I think we all have our our yeah, sort of go-to things. Yeah, we've got probably a different set of um, apps here in Australia, probably, again, just due to the local uh, airspace and, and mapping data that uh, goes along with that. But uh, uh, if we finish off the content side of things or the, or the blog, uh, it's probably Ian, Ian, there's probably one more for you, but... Uh, what sort of events uh do you get to? I know you got to Heli Expo, I think you did some coverage there. But do you find you get out to a lot of the the sort of industry events?
0: Sure. We do uh you know, as a as an editorial team we cover pretty much everything. And so uh I personally will go this year, I guess what? We did Helly Expo, which is a great show, um Sun and Sun down in Florida, just got back from and then uh and then of course Oshkosh, which is the big one. Usually we go to Friedrichshafen, uh, in Germany this year. Unfortunately, our, our guy who usually goes couldn't go, but, um, we got go out there. We just, he actually just got back from the, everything, you know, we, big and small, he got back from the Cafe Electric Symposium out in California where all the engineers, you know, get deep into what's going on in electric propulsion and, uh, and solar power. So, um, so yeah, we get, we get to do a bit of everything.
1: And anything um, big happening? Again, just watching the the flight schools on, on Facebook, and things like that. It's a heap of G 2s uh coming into the into the US in the school market. Are you seeing like is there some big movers in the GA helicopter market? Uh, either if it's like the the home builds or things like that. Is there a couple of new designs sort of coming through that are really worthy of um, keeping an eye on?
0: Yeah, well, I you know I, one of the reasons I went to Amsterdam was to find out what's going on with their with their trainers, the TH one hundred and eighty. Um, I have high hopes. You know, I, I was really impressed with the helicopters when I was there and their build quality and, and the design. So this is their first certification project in decades. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, they seem to be off on the right foot and um, they're flying a pro So I think they're doing well. You know, I, I think the DH-180 is going to be a really good ship. The, uh, the cockpit, for example, is much more comfortable than like an R-22 and they have a, higher inertia and uh, higher component times, time. And so I think from a school perspective, it'll, it'll be a pretty attractive offer. Yeah. The, the, the Cabri, the G2, um, cool little, uh, light helicopter. I haven't had a chance to fly yet, but, um, looks like a lot of fun. And, and you're right. That is just starting to make it to the U S. Um, Bruno, the guy who developed it, he said that, uh, he purposely didn't go to the U S at first because just from a market size and liability standpoint, he had to kind of, uh, build up a, an Operation base before he, uh, before he tried to get certified by the FAA, but it seems like he's there and is growing really nicely. So, um, seems to be a, a well made helicopter and people are happy with it. So that, that one's going to be a lot of fun, I think. And then, of course, the big one on the light end that everyone's waiting for is the new Jet Ranger, the 505 coming out of Bell. So we'll see how that is. I think Bell made a mistake when they got out of the, of the business, uh, that a couple of years ago, but but I suppose some of it had to do with maybe they had tapped out the airplane. So we'll, um, we'll see what happens with this new one, but, uh, a lot of excitement around that and they have, you know, hundreds of orders. And so that, that's going to be
1: big for them, I think. And even going lighter than that. So maybe, I don't know if they're, I can't, am not sure the categories there, whether they're experimental or not, or, um, sort of personal rotorcraft. craft, but I see there's a uh, Safari. They make like a, almost like a Bell 47 sort of clone. Um, see so a bit of coverage of those, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff sort of coming out of the woodwork at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, they um, definitely we've got a couple, of, you know, mosquito, and uh, there are a few of those experimental uh, light ones, and they they definitely they have their followers and have their fans. Um, you know, it, it's uh, I find that in the U.S. at least, it seems like it's two different communities. You know, you have this sort of the certified. Personal community and then you'll have the really the the hackers of the world you know the the tinkers the guys who really they want to build and they think that you know building is their obsession whether it's uh six-wing rotorcraft uh or whatever and so there are definitely those that um you know rotorway and uh and, and, and those that'll that'll support that so uh yeah it's uh that's that's really that's cool they're around
1: Excellent. Okay. Well, Marcus, let's. Um, you've you know you've done a heap of different things here too. So if we can jump to a little bit of your career, and just tease out a couple of stories that people might be able to get something from. So uh, you sent me through a list here. You know you've flown Bell forty sevens all the way from you know wood blades, uh tuna flying, uh, Hawaii <laughs> stuff, power lines, Gulf of Mexico, EMS, and uh, as you said, you're about to go. You know the, the one eight nine. So sort of the big end of town. But you, you said you've had two engine failures and one was uh, to a hospital helipad at night in a, in a 105. So it might be a good place to start. Can you, yeah, maybe just talk us through uh,
2: that story. Oh, that's not a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can change it, but that's fine. No, no, no. I'm I'm kidding. It's, you know, as pilots, we train, we train and train. And we train for those eventualities we never want to have happen in emergency procedure. And I've always felt, you know, as a pilot and and as an instructor, that there's no such thing as rising to the occasion. I've not seen that. It doesn't happen. What happens is in the event of an emergency, we sink to the level of our training. We're only as good as our training. And there's no intangible of a miracle or rising to the occasion in my mind. I've not seen that happen. And so a pilot... And any pilot can be a professional pilot. I don't mean commercial. I mean a professional pilot mindset. And do you know your aircraft? Are you prepared for that? Do you think about EPs once in a while? And when I'm flying the line, I am flying two pilot crew. So there's two pilots up in front on these larger aircraft that I'm flying now. And we go through one EP every day. And it could be we're sitting on the ground and we have a very long leg and we're at altitude cruising. And we discuss one EP, one emergency procedure a day. And you've got to keep your head in the game and you've got to be ready for them. And some EPs, uh, tail rotor failures and engine failures, you may not, you probably don't have much time. And what uh, highlights that is one night I, I, was, I was flying EMS and an MBB, Messerschmitt Blom Bolcal 105, CBS, which guys that have flown this aircraft know it's not a very powerful twin uh, on one engine. It's it's unlikely you can even maintain altitude at VY and very, very challenging aircraft. And we were nowhere near VY. We were actually landing at night to a hospital helipad. And so there's, you know, it's not an airport. It's not a lot of room here. And about so a grand, grand level pad or on top of a building? A uh, ground level pad, which was fortunate. It, it allowed me to make a different type of approach than I would make on the rooftop pad. So it was a large ground level pad without obstructions on the uh, approach path we were taking. So that was a big advantage. Another advantage we had was we were returning uh, from after dropping off a patient at a trauma center. So we were coming back to base, and our base was at this hospital. So we were light on fuel, and we did not have the, the weight of the, pac- the patient on board. So all those things were advantages. Also, it was at night, so it wasn't very hot. So there was not any high DA, density altitude considerations. Uh The bad part was we lost the engine about a 100 feet off the ground, and we were just coming below translational lift. And that that aircraft absolutely has no flyaway capability on one engine at that altitude, at that airspeed. So uh, we were committed to landing. And what had happened was a compressor blade on one of the engines actually broke. And the engine got sent off to the metallurgist FAA and uh, Rolls-Royce. was an Allison 250 C20B engine. And they they actually, it was a crack in, in one of the fins on the fifth stage of the compressor that had broken off. And the crack had evidently been there for a while and it just decided to let loose on me. And, uh, so anyway, I, I got it on the helipad on the ground and we didn't, didn't hurt the, uh, good engine, which is always a bonus, but as pilots, we don't always care too much about the good engine. And, uh, we, we, we prioritize things. We will, if you have to overtorque the good engine in order to keep people safe, then that's what you do. And, or keep the airframe safe. So the engine's sort of third down the list. But in this case, we were to obviously preserve all three, get it on the ground in one piece. And the aircraft was actually flying two days later with a new engine. But, uh, when it happened, that compressor was probably doing about 32,000 RPM. So you can imagine what it sounded like it sounded like a stick of dynamite went off behind us and uh it, it, the tot was immediately pegged out and the end to the engine was zero and i don't remember bothering with the gauges after that it's at night and i just got it on the ground uh safely after that and it had uh it had destroyed that one fin it took out all the other fins downstream in that compressor and it did so much damage to that engine that we found just a minute, a multitude, hundreds of scratches on the bottom side of the main rotor blades from all of the pieces of metal coming out of the engine exhaust.
1: Uh, so that's so, a scary part. Is if it's in, you know, if it's contain in the engine, <laughs> that's all good. But if it's throwing bits of metal everywhere,
2: you're right. You know, fortunately, it wasn't a turbine burst that that actually broke through the casing and, you know, could take out the other engine so it was contained but on this particular engine there are collector tubes on each side of the engine that where the air flows from the compressor to the combustion can and those were all dented up from the pieces of metal and it looked like it. somebody took a ball pin hammer and just banged on those metal tubes from the inside <laughs> i don't know how you would do that yeah, but uh, you know it it looked pretty bad, but it, it it actually contained, you know, all the destruction and it just sent it right out of the exhaust.
1: The other tip, bit, um, I remember just picking up, and I think it was even like doing my early fixed wing training, so pretty more relating to, you know, engine failure in a, in a single fixed wing airplane, but it still relates as the, uh, you know, once that happens, the insurance company owns the aircraft and uh, all you're worried about is, is walking away from it at the end of the day. Um, that was the little bit I still
2: remember from uh, that early training. Definitely. I think, you know, as pilots, what we're talking as far as emergency procedures, emergencies go, your your first priority is preservation of life. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there are actually ditching procedures for an aircraft and you might be ditching at sea. And that's a situation where you don't really care about the aircraft you're trying to preserve life. That's a pretty extreme situation. So our first priority is always preservation of life. Number two, is your airframe and number 3 might be a component like an engine. So, if you have to over-torque an engine to satisfy the first two, obviously you would do that. So, we're taught that with emergencies, emergency procedures and training.
1: All right, let's let's go to a happier thing then. What's your uh, what's your favorite memory from your career? <laughs>
2: well, I've got so many and uh I remember the first day I soloed And I soloed in a Bell 47 and we had two of them. And one actually had was a D model, a Bell 47 D model that has wooden blades. And I I tell this story to our younger pilots. And when I mean younger, like 30 year old pilots, and they look at me like wooden blades. Are you crazy? Yeah, I reckon. (laughs) Nobody can really. But they were good and we never had any main rotor blade problems with the aircraft (laughs) but i do remember when when it would rain and typically when you tie down a two-bladed helicopter you just tie down the blade it's you tie down the blade aft towards the tail boom towards the tail rotor to the tail boom so that the blades aren't level the forward blade is tilted up and the aft blade that's tied down to the boom is actually lower well that doesn't work too good when it rains with the bell forty seven d because the wood blades they will soak up the rain. What happens is that lower blade ends up soaking up more rain than the blade that's sticking up higher. Uh, yes. so what happens when you first start it up you're out of balance. you have a lateral, and so you'll feel it and you just leave it at idle and it's amazing after about a minute, it starts to go away. <laughs> Because as the blades are spinning, they're yeah, shedding, water. shedding
1: water off the water. So yeah. it's
2: kind of a crazy thing to think about that. But I, the first day I soloed uh, was a Bell 47, and uh, I probably soloed a little bit too early. I only had eight hours, and uh, I was a, I was very nervous at first. And actually, got hit by a gust of wind, and I don't know what happened. I was supposed to come in with left pedal to correct that. For some reason, I came in with right pedal. And the helicopter actually did a 360 and it it really rattled me. I almost just took it back to the ramp and set it down. I was hover taxing out to a runway at the time. And I just kind of hovered there for about a half a minute. And this was a big flight school. And I knew I had an audience because you always do when you solo for the first time. And I knew everybody saw it and, and I thought, okay, well, I've got it now. Let's just settle down. And I did my, Three departures, close traffic, and three approaches. And I came back to the ramp and I shut down the aircraft and I walked in the building. And I walked up to my instructor and he's not even looking at me. He's just at the desk doing paperwork, kind of a stand up desk. And I go up to him and I said, Hey, uh, I'm back. He goes, Yeah, great. And he doesn't say anything. I <laughs> said, Well, were you watching me? And he goes, Oh, yeah. Yeah, you did great. And I go, Well, did you? Watch me in the beginning when I was over texting up to the runway. He puts down the logbook, looks at me straight in the eye, and he goes, Yeah, you scared the heck out of me. I thought I soloed you too early. And I go, I thought you soloed me too early, too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, that's what so I was say that, that uh, they pretend in, <laughs> indifference. You know, I'm sure when I do it and everyone else I know does it. That that first flight, you, you don't let, you don't take your eyes off the machine. So,
2: oh, but you, uh, you
1: don't want to, yeah. You're right. You don't want to let the student know that when you when they come back in.
2: Right. So that was a pretty memorable. That was another one that I can think of was uh, flying off the tuna boats. It was I had been an instructor for a couple of years, and instructors. In the United States versus many other countries, it, it's more of an entry level job for many of us. It's low paying and, uh, which can seem backwards sometimes because, you know, and, and that's not always the case, but for, for many pilots, it is sort of your first job, commercial wise. And then you get, uh, you know, a higher paying job, maybe a more sophisticated aircraft. And anyway, so my, First job after being an instructor was flying off the tuna boat, and it can be very challenging, especially in the beginning. You've never done it before, and what would happen is takeoffs. Takeoffs are usually pretty straightforward. You grab max power and get the heck away from the boat. Uh, landing is another matter. So the problem is you got two hours of searching for fish to think about. How the heck am I going to get this thing on that boat? And you're watching the swell, and you might think, oh, that swell's come up. It's about a seven foot swell now, and the wind's gusting, and maybe the boat's not heading quite the right direction for a favorable landing. And you've got like a couple hours to think about this, and you have no option. You are at sea. There's no option of landing on, of getting to land. Uh, you might, we well could be 800 miles from the nearest land. So you do have to land on the boat. And so I, I remember it was pretty memorable that first week and what all the uh, more veteran pilots told me out there was, it's just the first 20 hours, Marcus, if you can just get through the first 20 hours, you're going to be okay. <laughs> uh, you'd be counting <laughs> so down those first were, 20 hours. Yeah. Pardon? You'd be counting down those first
1: 20 hours. and
2: <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was more like not so much the hours. It was really the number of landings. And, uh, it it's an art and you do kind of get the hang of it and then after it t- to me when when you get to that day and it it took many trips and probably about a half a year but when you get to that day where yeah maybe the ship is going downwind in a following sea and it's really rolling and it's pitching and it's just all over the place and it's kind of the most unstable heading that a, that a tuna boat can be on is going downwind in a following sea. And, you know, nothing's favorable about it, the ship movement or the winds. And when you get to that point where they don't have to slow down or turn it into the wind, and you as a, heli- a helicopter tuna pilot, you can just say, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. I'll be on the deck in a few minutes, and you can do that. And it did t- to me when I got to that level of the other guy's and uh you know they were doing that they were obviously more veteran than me i was the new guy out there you know that was that was pretty memorable i liked that i felt i felt i had sort of arrived (laughs) as a tuna (laughs) pilot (laughs) yep
1: oh very very good and uh ian i don't know have you got a a favorite memory you want to want to share or experience you've had so far
0: oh well you know i'm i mean (laughs) i can't compete with that you know i I guess for me, it was, uh, it was my first, uh, flight with a passenger after I got my certificate. You know, I, I had, I got my fixed wing stuff when I was in college. And so my first passenger was, I think a buddy of mine and we just, you know, flew around the pattern a couple of times. So it wasn't terribly memorable, but, um, but after getting, uh, the rotorcraft, craft, I, you know, my, my wife had supported me through the whole thing. And so, uh, I, I made her go with me the first time. And, And, you know, we'd flown airplanes together, obviously. And so the idea of going to a restaurant or something on an airport was really not a big deal. And so I wanted to make it special. And and I spent like two weeks calling around and trying to find the place to go. And and I finally, I found a restaurant uh, locally that had a big parking lot, big grass parking lot. Um, And uh, and they were excited about me coming in. And so um, it was a summer day and we took the doors off the R-22 and it was a beautiful night. We flew out and landed at the restaurant and, uh, had dinner and, and then, um, took off again and flew over the house and, uh, came back. And so it it was, uh, it was really cool. And, and she's, she's a, a a happy airplane passenger, but not, uh, she doesn't get excited about it really. You know, it's just a way to get places. But, um, uh, I remember we, you know, we took off and, uh, (laughs) pulling through about four or 500 feet and, and she kind of looks out and, you know, and the wind's coming in and, and she's like, "Man, this is what it feels like to be a movie star, you know." And it's uh, it's true. There's just something special about <laughs> helicopters. You just can't get with anything else. So it was uh, it was very special.
2: It was very cool. Fantastic! That's awesome. All right, guys, let's have have I have, a, I have, a, oh, yeah, I have another. I'll, I'll throw this one in. I, it's a wasn't so much a memorable story for me, but a, another passenger story. I have a good friend of mine, and he flies. He's flying DC-10s and he's not flown a helicopter. And I was in town flying power line patrol, and they took him up and took him up in the helicopter. And he was enamored with the helicopter. And what we did, we were coming short final, and we're all about 400 feet off the ground. And I just pulled the cyclic back and we're bleeding off airspeed. And I'm kind of watching him out of the corner of my eye. And he's as we go slower and slower, He's sitting straighter and straighter in his seat and his hands are straight down and he's gripping the seat. And I notice he's gripping tighter and tighter and tighter. And I just looked at him and said, this must feel very strange to you. He goes, yeah, we'd be stalling right now, falling out of the sky. And we zero out the speed and we're just hovering about 400 feet with the runway right in front of us on short final and we're not moving. And, and I, I said, how about that? And he goes, this is amazing! I want to learn how to fly helicopters. <laughs> so he we went. He went from very he went from nervous to wanting to fly helicopters in about twenty seconds.
0: That's true. That's all it takes. It's, uh, you realize, boy,
2: uh, what an incredible machine uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that's all it takes. Uh, I, I think I, I flew. I flew air medical for twenty years, and I think we well as helicopter pilots, we love landing off airport. We love landing where you've never landed a helicopter before. And like Ian said, you know, it's a unique, it's a unique aircraft, it has a lot of capability. And we always, we love nothing more than hearing on the radio, well, we're not sure there's enough room, we're not sure you can land land here. And we thought, whenever we heard that, we thought, oh, this could really be fun trying to find a safe creative way of landing there and you know it's you know, it's, it's got to be big enough it's got to be the right surface you know you can't get yourself in a brownout and of course you have slope limitations but you learn to size all those up day and night size all those up but i always found it probably the most satisfying flying i've ever done was air medical when you're utilizing this aircraft uh, to its capabilities and you're flying in Really off airport confined areas. It could be uh, on a beach. It could be on a lonely road through a mountain pass. But you're you're putting the helicopter down in some pretty challenging conditions to do what? To to, to take somebody in their worst hour of need. That's in dire need of a hospital, mostly trauma patients. And uh, we we had two nurses in the back with all the medical equipment, kind of like a you know a ER for the basic life support back there, and uh, suction, oxygen, et cetera, those kind of things. And then you're flying as expeditiously as possible and get them to a trauma center. And later in my career, when I was flying IFR aircraft doing this, I started in the Bell 222 as an IFR pilot you know, in air medical. And the most satisfying flights to me were the ones where I was where I would utilize all the skills. I might land off airport VFR and then to get to the trauma center, maybe I utilize IFR. So it would have an IFR component. And we would often shoot an ILS to a nearby airport. You break that off and then go special VFR and land at the hospital helipad. I always found that the more skills a pilot utilizes in a flight could be night vision goggles. You know, we later adapted to night vision goggles. So we were flying IFR and we had NVDs. And I always really found the flights the most memorable and satisfying were the ones where I utilized VFR skills, IFR skills, night vision goggles skills, and we flew efficiently and timely and got the patient where the patient needed to be. And I always, I thought there's really no better thing one can do with a helicopter than that.
1: And I guess it's that sense of accomplishment, isn't it? Like you spent years and years sort of getting those skills together and studying and all those bits and pieces to be able to put
2: you in that spot on that night where you can, you can carry that out. Right. And it's, you know what, and it's training, you know, once again, there's no rising to the occasion, Uh, the training, the mental preparation has to be there. And it's, it's a tough job for EMS pilots. I think night is very challenging and that call that call can come in any time. It could come in three in the morning. And that pilot, that pilot has to be ready to do his job, you know, and you can't sit there. Maybe you need IFR. You don't really have the luxury of planning, a taking 30 minutes to plan an IFR flight. And the idea is you should have already thought about, you should have already thought about Hey, an IFR flight to this area, I would utilize this approach at this airport and maybe meet the ambulance there if the weather is such and such. However, if the weather is this, I could shoot the approach, break off, then fly VFR using the goggles and land at that hospital or land on the scene. The idea is the mental pre-preparation is vital for, for an EMS pilot. And, and knowing, and knowing your area. And when I mean knowing your area, I mean, knowing where hospital helipads are and knowing where instrument approaches are and knowing your terrain. Absolutely.
1: And how's that so compare I, to I think, the, oh sorry, we'll finish that off in a moment, but how's that compare okay. then to the uh to the ORRI work that you're doing now then? Like coming off a high like that, as you said, where you're using so many different modes of flight and uh, and you're sort of instantaneously ready to go to yeah. then shift into <laughs> a job where it's a. Uh, you know, from, yeah. the, from the outside, or it could very much look like a you know taxi service where you're going to the same places every day in sort of straight lines. So
2: yeah, well, interesting to hear true. the comparison. Uh, flying oil and gas absolutely has its challenges, and it's it's different than EMS. Um, but now in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, we're going sometimes over 200 miles offshore, or 200 miles from our base, about 200 miles actually from a coastline. And so your, your, your mission, your, your planning, your fuel management and is, you still have the planning that you need to do. And weather, weather can change, uh, greatly flying those long distances. So that, to me, it's, it's just as exciting and you're thinking a lot of the same things. And it could be, we're doing IFR, we're doing VFR. And then up in Alaska, when I was flying up on the North Slope, we were doing sling loads and a lot of nighttime in the winter. And winter weather on the slope, well, let's say weather on the slope any time of the year can be very challenging and it, it could change very, very quickly. And there's not a lot of options. Airports and options and fuel is very few and far between up there. So that, that's a different kind of fun and excitement, you know, and in, instead of smaller EMS aircraft, flying very challenging flights were using a lot of your skills, your you know, now I find myself flying larger, more sophisticated, more expensive aircraft and doing sling loads and doing very long flights offshore and IFR and VFR. So that's, they're both, uh, I think they're both uh, professionally satisfying to the pilot. Yeah. All
1: right. Well, it sounds like you've got uh, a lot of blog posts to, to come then. So I'm looking forward to uh, to following the blog and, uh, and hearing some of these stories coming out.
2: Yeah, it's. I don't have any problem finding ideas. <laughs> there's always there's always something interesting to write about. I think.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, let's close that up then. And if we can just give folks again the, the where they can go to, to to read the articles and find out more about um, the organisation, the the AOPA. So, Ian, do you want to just plug the um, the contact details there again or the website address?
0: Yeah. Sure. So um, AOPA is just uh, a at www dot dot and uh, that's kind of the springboard for everything uh, that you want from magazines and videos and membership and uh, and the blog. The blog itself is a blog at and, and uh, you can find in there. It's called Hover Power. Of course, you can always Google Hover Power, and uh, and it'll come right up.
1: And how can folks get involved? Is they can they uh, email in and ask for certain things to be covered, or you basically yeah, leave comments and, then, and sort of talk in the in the comments section.
0: Yeah, we'd love comments and uh discussion in the comments section. So if we you know, if you think we've done something wrong or controversial or whatever, or you want to talk about your own experience, yeah, we'd love to hear it. And uh and all the writers are very engaged. They all um respond to comments and, and read the comments. So please do and uh and you don't have to be a member to comment or or to read the blog actually. So, uh, so we'd encourage everybody to do it. Um but uh, if, if uh, you want to get in touch with me personally and you have ideas, or um, if you want to see covered, absolutely. It's just uh, it's Ian I A N uh, period Twombly, which is uh, T W O M B L Y at aopa.org. So uh, I'd love to hear from folks anytime.
1: Fantastic. Well, Ian uh, Marcus, thank you very much, guys, for uh, yeah, filling us in on organisation and also a bit about your own uh, backstory. So that's awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you, Matt.
0: Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it.
1: Folks, Ian has five AOPA hats to give away to listeners. And to get your hands on one of these, it's super simple. You just need to think of a, a blog topic that you would like the Hover Power riders to cover on the, on the Hover Power blog and post your suggestion in the comment section for this episode at rotarywingshow.com forward slash. 31. So that's rotarywingshow.com forward slash 31. And just leave your idea there in the comments and Ian and I will follow up with you and try and get you a, a free hat. If you're outside the US, I don't know if the postage is going to allow them to uh, get a hat out to you, but by all means, uh, you know, give it a crack and we'll see uh, what they can sort out. There'll be links to the AOPA and helicopter blog in the uh, episode show notes at rotarywingshow.com. I've also embedded a a video of Ian giving some coverage of the last Heli Expo event. So you can see some of the content that the association is putting together in terms of not only magazines and things like that, but also uh, sort of online video segments. I put up a post on my personal Facebook wall there yesterday asking for iTunes reviews for the show. And I had a bunch of people leave a rating and some really kind comments in the Australian iTunes store I was I was pretty blown away. So thank you so much for those of you that did that. And as a result of that, the show is actually sitting now in the number three spot for the What's Hot section for aviation podcasts, which is, you know again, very, very cool. And Many of you, as you're listening to this, you're probably out driving or out walking. But if you remember, next time you're in front of a screen, then if you visit rotarywingshow.com forward slash review, that will redirect you to the iTunes page where you can just click and leave a, a quick star rating and it helps other people find the podcast, so that would be fantastic. Before we head out, I'll just throw a quick disclaimer in that the views and opinions expressed in today's show are those of the individuals and don't necessarily reflect those of their employers. Next week, you'll get to hear from a flight paramedic for a different take on helicopter ops. Till then, I've been your host, Mick Cullen, and hoping you have a, a fantastic week.